Thank you, Jonathan. Well, I greet you this morning in the name of Christ. It's been a real blessing for me to have been here already. And um, just been really blessed by the, by the service so far. I um, enjoyed the Sunday school. I noticed after Sunday school that uh, it's, or after the second bell rang, that it was uh, hard to shut it down. Saw so numerous of the adult classes. That's, that's a good and bad thing, I guess. We need to honor the superintendents, but uh, it's also good to see that we have good things to talk about. Well, this morning, I would uh, invite you back to our study on the church, New Testament church, and uh, I've subtitled it this morning, Ecclesia, a household of households, if you recall. I know there was a few of you that were missing, but the last message that was preached was down at the uh, farm, Eli's farm at the outdoor service. And um, we, uh, anybody recall what we talked about? Yes, Jonathan. We'll, we'll use church in quotations. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yes, yeah. Uh, I entitled it Ecclesia in the Past History of what uh, what the, I'm going to say, I'm going to use the term church today, but understand that I'm putting it in quotation marks uh, just for a reference. But uh, where the church was, uh, within 300 years after Christ initiated the body of, Christ, of, of God, uh, the body of Christ, the church, the ecclesia. And uh, this morning I'd like to, this is going to be a, a several part uh, message, um, and what I would like to look at in the next couple times is the different kinds of structures throughout history. I'm, it's going to involve some history again, but I think it can be very relevant for us today. And, and I've shared it with several individuals uh, in the past weeks. Um, I probably next week already, I'll be thinking about the next message. And so I've shared some of the things with, with individuals. And, and at least two of them, as I shared what, what I was talking about, as I referred to things in the past, they said, well, where are we today? And that's exactly my point. It is relevant for us today uh, because I see some of the same it, it, the, 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 the experiences are different, but maybe the same problems are reoccurring. And, and maybe you'll understand, hopefully you'll understand as we go along. Let's turn our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. And I've chosen to take uh, the verses 19 through the end of the chapter, Ephesians 2. And here's where we're talking about a household of households. In other words, the church of God, the body of Christ, it consists of household units, families. And I think it was Jonathan, maybe it was Josh, I forget who it was this morning. I remember hearing it saying that the church... It's made up of families, and it is. Nations are made up of families. 
And uh, certainly the kinds of families that make up the body of Christ reflect the bride of Christ. And, and the question we have to keep asking ourselves is, how are we doing? Let's go to the passage here in verse 19 of Ephesians chapter 2, where it says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. There we have the phrase, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for the dwelling place of God in the Spirit. There's a couple uh, phrases and a couple words that I'd like to define this morning. One of them that stands out to me is the term fellow citizens. You're no longer strangers and foreigners, but you're fellow citizens. You are a native from the same town. As I, th as I saw that, that term, a native from the same town, immediately a, a situation came to my mind. Back in 1997, uh, we were on sabbatical for uh, a stint from the north. And in that sabbatical year, our family, Glad and I, and all the way down to Elise, uh, flew down to El Salvador to visit my brother, Tim, and his family. It was the first time that I was going to be in a, I don't know, if, is El Salvador a third world? That's not a third world. What, what are they called? I don't know if it's a third world. Anyhow, it's out of states, okay? It was the first time I was in a different, well, I was in Canada prior to that, but out there somewhere, you know, where it's so different from us. And he had warned me ahead of time. He said, now, watch when you get to the airport because there are guys there that are just waiting for the foreigners to get off the plane, and they will rob you. And so, well, thanks. Okay, welcome to El Salvador. So I come off the plane with the family, three, five little ones. I don't know how old Awesome was at the time, and, and, you know, the whole trail down, I think Elise was just a baby. And uh, I was a little nervous, and, uh, and I had to use the, the, the washroom, and so I took the boys with me, and... As I was in the bathroom there, um, of course, I had a little pouch on the side here with all my money in and the passports and all that stuff, so it's to, you know close to me. But I just turned around, and there was two guys at either side of the bathroom, and I saw the one guy nod in my direction. He didn't see it that I saw him, but I saw him nod in my direction, and I saw them make eye contact with each other. I was on the alert. And what a relief. When I looked across the room and I saw a native from the same town, my brother, standing across the room, all of a sudden I felt back at home again. That's the picture of the body of Christ. There's a connection. All of a sudden we're back home again. We're, we're, we're where we belong. We're, we're, we're in the midst of strangers, and yet we have a connection with somebody. The next phrase that I want to look at, is the, that we are the household of God. And there again, it has the idea of domestic or, or a relative, an adherent of the house. And the, the, the phrase or the, the word adherent means a person who follows or upholds a leader's cause, a supporter, a follower. 
And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about a household of God. The church of God is a, is, consists of many households coming together. I like that picture. Something of, of sameness is going on. There's a synergy that is here, that is present. We have a commonality that is pulling us together. I've coined the phrase household of household from Val Yoder's book, I Will Build My Church. And I'm, I'm impressed with that concept of church. While we are individual members, individual in relationship and body, and function, uh, and body function, there is there's something, there's also something to be said about the need and the beauty, I might add, of being tied together corporately to each other. There's something very beautiful about that. Yes, our experience with Jesus Christ is personal as well as individual. We come to him in our own, on our own. We cannot assume upon the body for our relationship with Christ. So it's a personal relationship. However, the following phrase, I think, sheds some light on God's idea of the church. And the phrase that I'm looking at is that, that phrase being joined together. I think the King James uses the phrase fitly framed together. And it's, it's one Greek word, actually. We, we need three English words to define what we're talking about. But the idea uh, is to render close, jointed together. That is organized compactly. I always tell my customers when I'm talking about our product at Air Cabinet, and I take and I and I and I talk about the face frame of a cabinet. And I wish I'd have, I wish I'd have my my uh, my piece that I demonstrate with. When you take two pieces of wood, with the grains running the same direction, and you and you and you prep the edges of both pieces of wood properly, and you glue them together that joint is stronger than the wood itself. That joint will not break at that point. If it's prepared properly, it will break beside it or in the center of the wood or the piece of wood, but not on the joint. If you take cross-grain pieces and join them together, so you have one piece of grain going this way, another piece going this way, which is how a face frame of a cabinet is, you have one going horizontal, one vertical. At that corner, that's a very weak point in the wood because cross-grain wood does not adhere or bond very good. And so we have a system called mortise and tenon, which is, I think, the absolute best way of joining pieces of wood together. That's the idea that we have here in that fitly framed together where we have two pieces of wood running the same direction joined together by glue. There's an adhesion that is stronger than the wood itself. There, there's an adhesion that Courtney himself is, is going to become stronger when he joins himself to another person. And then there's more stacked beside each other, all joined together. And there's, there's a strength there that is not there by the, person, or by the piece itself. <clears throat> this is God's idea of church. Man's idea tends to go at it individually. 
Uh, there's when when we talk about when we talk about joining ourselves together, and and the idea of building community. Uh, one of the things that has just become uh, that I've become aware of, and I may have shared this at one of the other messages. I'm not sure. But I, I'm just becoming more aware that we're going to have to work harder today in our culture and in our society and with all the modern gadgets and gizmos that we have around us, we're going to have to work harder at being joined together than what we have had in the past. And here's my, here's my, here's my argument. In the past... When people worked in the fields and the farmers worked with each other, uh, farmers would help each other throughout the day, throughout the week. Uh, you were not able to buy a plow all by yourself, or maybe the combine, or maybe the, 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 the whatever it was, a piece of equipment that you needed. So the farmers in the community got together and they shared their equipment. So there was interaction throughout the week with your neighbor and oftentimes your brother ice cream socials at night. There was nothing else to do. There were no cars. And, uh, you know, you just, you were just, you found ways of community, of joining together. And today we have more equipment and technology to communicate with each other. And I'm telling you, the communication is less. In a, in a very, um, productive way we are made for relationship we are designed for relationship and there is nothing that can replace human relationship um, we can use and I use it I use the texting I use you know the emails uh, you know today anymore with the, with the customers they prefer they don't want a phone call they want a text or they want an email, and they respond to you on the go. And so it's just less and less time that I spend on the phone with my customer. It's just texting. And, and you know, but there's something that's breaking down in that, in that whole technology, and that is that we're losing touch with each other. And so we're going to have to work. You know, and so my point is now, today we are in we have, we have come to a place where most of the farmers have their own equipment and most of the carpenters have their own equipment and, and we're pretty self-sufficient. And so now we're trying to build community coming together once a week for two hours, Sunday morning, for some of us. Some of us, only one hour, only arrive at the last hour. But, you know, we do have Sunday evening and we do have Wednesday evening that we can keep working at building community. And I'd really like to encourage you to be part of that because it is one way that we can keep building community with each other, being joined together and strengthening that relationship. I had, uh, go back just a little bit now to the last message, Ecclesia in the Past. And we did talk about the medieval church moving away from the teachings of Christ taking up the sword and slaughtering those who did not join themselves to her way. In other words, they made 
people joined them by force, and they killed those who refused to join. It was an un- unbelievable, unbelievable atrocities that went on. And uh, yes, I did talk about the, the story of the time that the crusade, where they went back to Jerusalem, um, about 13,000 Romans came down from Rome uh, and, and all the way across the, the Europe there and down into Jerusalem to rid the city of Jerusalem from those infidels who were the Muslims. An unbelievable victory uh, happened uh, where, the, where, where the Crusades were able to go in and they slaughtered 100,000 Muslims. That's a shame on the, on the name of Christ. And, and the thing that gripped me, I read you the story of the person that was there. You remember what he said? And the way that they rejoiced when they saw all those people killed and slaughtered? He quoted scripture saying, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. As they saw 100,000 bodies laying strewn across the city. In the name of Christ. Well, in the same message, we backed up to the early church. And noted that for the first 300 years of the church, they were the ones that were being persecuted. From the time of Christ, for the next 300 years, the church was persecuted. They were hunted. They were slaughtered for the, for the name of, following the name of Christ. In fact, Diocletian, at the end of that 300-year stint, there, if you remember, there was about 40 years where the persecution sort of died off a little bit. And then Diocletian came along, the emperor of Rome, and he issued one of the most severe persecutions that had ever come against the, the Christians. It was an unbelievable uh, uh, turn of events for the Christians. Eight years, Diocletian just ravaged the Christians, uh, burned their prayer houses. They called them prayer houses at that time. Church, we call them church houses. They call them prayer houses. Burned them to the ground. They took the scriptures and they, they, they confiscated the Bibles and the scriptures that they had and burned them. And the people were persecuted beyond human imagination. It's just hard to believe how human, one human can treat another human. Many of the Christians recanted at that point. And they were, they were, they looked as if the church was, was going to go to naught. <laughs> but, but eventually the persecution passed. After eight years it passed. And then something very, very significant happened. And that's what we want to focus on today. Now, I want to just pause and say that uh, there, there's, there is some kinds of, of history that I really enjoy. Uh, and, and, but I really believe that there are lessons to be learned from history. I just heard a quote this past week. Uh, Brother Willis gave me a set of uh, CDs that I listened to throughout the week. And one of the quotes that the brother shared on that uh, series He said that if you don't know where you come from, you don't know where you are, and you don't know where you're going. And I thought, wow. 
In other words, there must be some sort of historical bearing in order for us to, to set a clear path for the future. And that's part of the reason for this series of messages that I've been sharing with you is to help us understand and to think through the throbbing heartbeat that God has, that Jesus has for his bride, the church. As we look at history and see how miserably man has failed to achieve the standard that God has set out for his bride, uh, I just I shake my head, and yet I'm awed, and I'm grateful, and I take great courage in God's unfailing grace that keeps calling us back to him in spite of our short-sightedness. It's encouraged to know that there's always been a remnant of faithful people that have continued, that has continued to follow Christ in every era of history. I take great courage in that, and I'd like to share that uh, courage with you as well. Following Diocletian's ravage attack against the Christians, there was a significant shift, shift of compromise that took place in the church. It seemed that when Satan saw that he could not make the church bow by brute force, he changed his tactics. And we're going to see how he changed his tactics today. And it came by the person, the emperor, called Constantine. Constantine was, the, was one of the emperors following Diocletian. Now, the, at that time, the, the Roman Empire was, was sort of divided into two, two sections. There was the Eastern Empire and the Western Empire. The Western war part was where it, where it included Italy and Rome. Of course, Rome was the, 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 the seat, as it were. But Constantine got the Eastern part. But he always had his eyes to the West. He, his goal, it seems like, was that he wanted to be emperor over the whole uh, um, state. And, and so he always had his eyes to the West. For whatever reason, and by the way, most writers, and I want to I put a clause here, most historians would look at Constantine as being the first Christian Christian emperor. I put it in quotation marks. Most people don't. Most people would say that, that Constantine was the first Christian emperor. Uh, and it is true that he was very favorable. He looked very favorable toward the Christians. Um, but at one point, earlier on in his reign, he was on his way to the west, on his way to Rome to fight against his rival and relative, um, Maxentius. And at one point in the journey, Constantine had a spiritual experience. Uh, some recorded as a dream, some recorded as a vision. I'm not sure what it was, regardless of which one it was. In this experience, he saw in the skies the sign of a cross. And then he received the message, by this sign, you will conquer. Now, whether it was a supernatural phenomenon or simply a natural formation of clouds and light, I don't know. 
But Constantine took it as a special message from God. And so that night, he commanded all his soldiers, and they were just a day's journey away from Rome now when this happened. That night, he told his, his soldiers that they are to take their shields, the shields that they had. Remember how they fought back in the medieval times, swords and arrows. And so they had the shields. He said, take your shields and, and he commanded them to paint the labarum on the symbol of the labarum on their shields. Now that, is a, that symbol there is the symbol of Christ in Latin. And so he told them to paint that symbol on their shields. And then with this accomplished, he went into battle the next day the following day, against an army twice his size, and he conquered it. He overthrew his relative, and now he was emperor over the whole state, the vast area that the Roman Empire had at that point. He was at the top of the seat. The battle confirmed in his mind that not only should he quit and, and that Christians should be, uh, the, the persecution of, of the uh, Christians should stop, should come to an end, but that all future battles should be fought in the name of Christ. Some speculate that Constantine really genuinely wanted to promote Christianity in his empire. But the truth of the matter was that Constantine was far from the kingdom of God. And I'm, I'm saying that because of the fruit that we see in his life. Uh, he was an unregenerate man. And uh, he was a man of the world. And he thought like, in terms of, of like-mindedness, he thought like a worldly person would think. The year 13, uh, 313, now this was only a couple years after Diocletian. I, what, it just blows my mind how quickly the church shifted. Just a few short years later, the Christians had even more good news. Because Constantine uh, put out a message, an edict, that the Christians would be put, or Christianity was put on an equal level with all other religions. In other words, Christianity would be a free religion in the Roman Empire. Hmm. Does that ring a bell with somebody? What have we experienced in the last 200 years? Now, we call that a blessing, don't we? But remember what I said last time we preached? What did Jesus call a blessing? Blessed are ye when ye are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's what God called it. That's what Jesus called a blessing. I don't like to think in those terms. But that's what Jesus said was a blessing. And we say, thank you, God, for blessing us with the freedom of worship. What has it done to the Western church? What has that freedom done to the Western church? That, I'm just asking a question. Di or, uh, 
um, Constantine also returned the property that was confiscated during Diocletian's rule. He uh, repelled the, the uh, prayer houses, and he used taxpayer money to do it. Uh, historian after historian would say that, uh, that the taxes during Constantine's time was just, a- just astronomically high, higher than any other empire prior to that. And so he just taxed the people to death. But with that, he built prayer houses. And that's the first one that he commissioned, this one right here. The first one in Constantinople that, um, that, he, um, that he built. See, there was a catch. There was a catch to furnishing the funds to build the houses. Because he thought, well, if the state furnishes the funds to build the buildings, then the state should have some input on how they should be built. And hence, we began to have these huge cathedrals, these huge prayer houses that just a couple years previously would not have even been thinkable for the Christians. They, 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 they would not have even thought of having something like this. Today, we have places like St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican City. Just prior to Austin Melinda getting married, they had uh, been on the course trip with the SMBI, and they went to Italy. And I remember Austin calling back and telling me, Dad, we have gone to cathedral after cathedral, and I have never seen so much gold in my life. He said the ceilings and the sides and the altars and everything inside these, these cathedrals are just overlaid with gold. And that's what you see. I remember a couple of years ago when we were in Europe and we stopped in, in uh, one of the uh, German cities and toured one of the, uh, the cathedrals and uh, just unbelievably tall and and just it's hard i should have put a photo in there of the of the of the cathedral that we that we uh that we visited but that's what took place because constantine was furnishing the funds for this it was all state funded let me just interject and say that you know today when more energy is put into the physical structure of a building than into the body of Christ, we are on a downward spiral. And um, I'll just leave it with that. In a very short period of time, the tide had turned for the Christians. By all appearances, things were definitely stacking in their favor. But was it? The honest truth was that these events ushered a, a, just a cataclysmic turn of, a, of, of tide for the church. From this time forward, we see a new romance ushered in between the church and the state that was totally inconceivable just a few years earlier. In just a few short years, leaders who had been hunted and butchered like animals now were invited to, to the upper enchilons of the society. They were one of the elite in the society. 
bishops were, uh, and elders were promoted as honored guests in the emperor and his hierarchy. Uh, they were, they were uh, exempted from taxation. These leaders, these church leaders, uh, they, were, they were paid a wage by, with state funds. Is that what Scripture says? What does Scripture say? The workman is worthy of his hire, but where does it come from? Where? The body, the church, yes, not the state. The state should never pay for the things of the church. And by the way, we have a lot of that going on. More of that in a couple weeks when we have our panel discussion. Um, Constantine gave one of his residents to the Bishop of Rome. And it seemed to them that, I think it seemed to them that there were no strings attached, but there was a huge price that they were paying for this. The pendulum shift, there was a paradigm shift in their social status, and it proved to be more than what some leaders could handle. From here forward, we begin to see a dynamic compromise in the church as she began her relationship with the state. Eventually, through a series of events, Constantine began to see himself as the governor or the universal bishop of those not only inside the church, but also those outside the church. So now he had sort of finagled his way to bring both state and church together. So then to be part of the one meant you were part of the other. If you were born a Roman, you were part of the Roman church. If you were, it's just, you, you just didn't separate the two. And for the next 1,300 years, the church was merciless to those who attempted to confront it. With that in mind, it is then easier for me to understand the story that I related to you last time why they took it upon themselves to march across the miles to free Jerusalem from its infidels because they were taking back the city for God. I don't know whether this impacts you the way it has me, but to me it is staggering to think how quickly the church lost its way. Inconsistencies within the system abounded. The religious elite were soon corrupted both, both morally and doctrinally, and they were consumed by their powers and their riches. The Roman church literally plundered the common people of their wealth in exchange for a false system of forgiveness. The average person was excused while living in degeneracy if they would continue to pay enough of money for their sins to be forgiven. Think of the fallacy. So you can live like the devil if you want, if you pay enough for uh, your sins to be forgiven. And that's what the church was teaching. <clears throat> On the other hand, there were special groups of people, such as the priests and the nuns and the monks, who were thought to be exclusively spiritual, based upon their austere and disciplined lives. This, of course, split Christianity into two groups. 
We now have the common folks who had to pay to have their sins forgiven by those of the spiritual elite. To further dominate, and by the way, Paul taught against that in Corinthians chapter 11, didn't he? Remember when he's t- teaching about communion and uh, those who were rich and those who were poor? And he was saying, look, that should not be happening in the church. You come together on a common level of Jesus Christ. And then to further dominate their control on the, the, the church leaders made the scriptures inaccessible by, by commanding or de- insisting that the scriptures remain in Latin. Latin was an unknown language to the common folk. They couldn't understand it. And so they insisted to keep the scriptures in Latin. And as a result, um, the common folk just did whatever the priest told them to do. It may well be that Constantine truly wanted to improve the Roman Empire, the Roman society, and outlaw the things that were offensive to God. The trouble was, he was not a reborn Christian. He was still a man of this world. We must remember the words of Jesus, (laughs) where he said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight. God's kingdom is not set up here on this, on this world as a physical or a, a governmental body as we know government to be. Because Constantine was not of the same kingdom, he, he held to some of the values, uh, even though he held to some of the values. Um, Let me rephrase that, because Constantine was not of that same kingdom, the the kingdom of God. He only held to some of the values of that kingdom. It was like taking a wolf and stripping him from his shaggy mane and his shaggy coat and putting a a woolen lamb's coat on top of him. Uh, The fact is, he's still a carnivore. He will still eat meat. Because inside he's still a wolf. And that's exactly what happened with, with, with Constantine. The Constantinian hybrid of Christianity reflects a compromise uh, on both sides of the fence. And for the first time we see the ones, the persecuted, the persecuted, the ones who were being persecuted, becoming the persecutors. You know, when I read about some of the things that, that happened during that era, the, the punishment that was exacted on those who violated Christian principles was beyond brutal and harsh. It was inhumane. It, animals don't treat each other that way. Think of it. Um, it, it. It was evil in nature. For instance, some of those who were who were accused of sexual assault or sexual being sexually seductive could easily have been burned alive for their for their actions or be torn apart by wild animals at the amphitheater in front of other people or have molten hot lead poured down their throats that was the punishment for some of those sins that they committed 
their response, the, the church's response to the moral wrong was hyper-exaggerated. That's the way they dealt with sin. And uh, the way they dealt with sin was by far worse than the original offense. They would have done well to read the passage of Scripture that Jesus, how Jesus handled the woman caught in adultery. He didn't excuse her for her sin, but he certainly didn't pour hot molten lead down their throat, down her throat. I just want to share a bit of, of wisdom with you that when you observe a person being hard-nosed and unyielding or overreactive to a particular situation, note that person's character. Because it's very likely that he or she will be very unprincipled in another area of their life that could well be more detrimental or destructive in value or consequence. You understand what I'm saying? Guilt, guilt will cause us to overreact to other people's sin. You show me a person that can pick out all the flaws of another person, and I will show you a person that very likely will have some open or hidden sin in his own life or her own life that is possibly more detrimental than the one that's being accused. Constantine was consumed with power and, be and, and became paranoid about losing his position as emperor. As a result, he, he slew anyone that was deemed a threat to him, including his own brother-in-law and his own nephew, who he thought were were vying for his position, so he just got away, done away with it. That's why I say that, that Constantine was not a body, he was not the body of Christ. He was not a Christian. His fruit did not show forth Christianity. Yet the church turned its head away and ignored the actions. Now I want to talk just a little bit about the papal structure. Because I think this is, this is really, I'm coming down to what I really want to talk about now, okay? I, I sort of laid the groundwork for you. Some may have made the, the, the observation that the ecclesiastical position, the positions of the Roman Catholic hierarchy, and by the way, there's seven of them, parallel the governmental system of the empire. Now, I don't know that. I haven't studied the government part or the side of it, but, um, but it is true that they have set up a hierarchy starting, so the Pope is, 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 uh, is right in line with St. Peter. Like he, so they take the, they take the passage in, in Matthew 18, where Jesus had the conversation with Peter. It says, who, who do men say that I am? And he made that great confession Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living, living God. And he said, upon this confession, Jesus said that, upon this confession, okay, so they take that passage of Scripture and say that, that next in line to Christ is Peter. Upon the, upon the confession of Peter, the church is going to be built. So Peter is a very predominant figure in the Roman Catholic faith. 
Jesus, what Jesus was saying was not upon your confession, not upon Peter. Not upon Peter will the church be built, but upon the confession that he made about Christ. That's what the church is going to be made of. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's what the church is built upon. But they say it's built upon Peter because of what Jesus said. And so following Peter are the popes. And then there's the cardinals. And then there's the archbishops or the, the Holy See, I think is the, how they're referred to. And there are the bishops. And then the priests. And then there are deacons. And then way at the body is the laity. Now, God speaks to me through this hierarchy, this chain of command. And consequently, the laity approaches God through that same system. And consequently, the result, of course, is that we suddenly have man becoming the standard to follow rather than the Word of God. Now, I will say this, that that is a safe thing to do as long as the ones we are following are following the Word of God. In fact, Paul said that. He said, follow me as I follow Christ. But that imperative is conditional. If Paul would have stopped following Christ, we would not have followed Paul. He said, follow me as I follow Christ. The trouble was, this chain of command was not following Christ. And that's where the breakdown was. You only follow man when they are following Christ. Constantine was not following Christ, nor should the church have been following him. Yet when we have Constantine, if we have a Constantine at the top of the chain like he was, who himself was not a Christ follower, little wonder you have the church plunge into the dark ages. Now that's the first time that you've heard me use that phrase, the dark ages. Let me just pause and talk just briefly about that era of time. It was about the 5th through the 13th century. Well, we would refer to, some would say it bled into the 14th and the 15th century, but generally they would say 5 through 13th century that the uh, Dark Ages uh, were considered to be. It was after the fall of the Roman Empire. Interestingly enough, the Roman Empire fell after it was, quotes, Christianized. Isn't that interesting? This golden age that they wanted to bring about by Christianizing the state caused the empire to fall. There's a lot in that statement, but I'm just going to leave it there, okay? The Roman Empire, up to this point, had by far been the largest and the strongest empire in the history of the earth. The United States would pale in comparison to the, inf the infrastructure of that empire. It really would. And we think we're a strong nation here. But eventually it fell, and with it, it took 
the then-known world into a darkness, the depths of darkness, probably unparalleled to anything that we can imagine. I've already told you the story of the crusade coming back to Jerusalem. Does anybody remember or recall the date that I told you that happened? And I'm sure you don't. It was July 8th, 1099. And so it's right in the middle of the darkest of the dark. Just about 50 years prior to that crusade, I'm just going to give you one story to help you understand how dark that time was for them. About 50 years prior to that crusade that I told you about, uh, there was a prince in Rome named Alberic. Alberic was preparing to go into yet another battle um, when he was suddenly struck with a deadly fever. And realizing that he was about to die, he, he called together the noblemen and, um, and, and he summons them to the tomb of St. Peter. And there at the tomb, he made the noblemen swear on the bones of St. Peter. He made them swear that they would make his 15-year-old son Octavian prince after his death. Had I mentioned that, that Alberic was the prince of Rome? Okay. Um, so they made him swear. He made them swear that he would make, they would make his 15-year-old son the, emperor, the uh, prince of Rome. But he took it a step further. He also made them swear that he would become the next pope once the, the reigning pope would die. And that was the only way that a pope would be, would be replaced, was if he would die. And, um, and the nobleman swore on quotes, the bones of St. Peter, that they would do that. And so after Alberic's death, at the age of 15, Octavian became the prince of Rome. A year later, the existing pope died, the reigning pope died, and now you have a 16-year-old uh, being not only the prince of Rome, but also the pope of Rome. And uh, we have a, a, a very predominant figure in the government, also being the Pope himself. And so he distinguished himself uh, between the two responsibilities by giving himself two names. When he was acting as a Pope, or when he was in the capacity of a Pope, he referred to himself as John the 13th, X111. When he was, when he was acting as a Prince, he referred to himself as Octavian, his real name. I guess he was... He was uh, ruling two kingdoms, so he used two names, I guess was his logic. The sad part of the story was that Octavian was an incredibly wicked man. He protected his papacy uh, and his, his priestdom by surrounding himself with gangs of armed thugs. That's how he protected himself. They were just literally gang members that, that protected him. He was addicted to drinking. He was addicted to gambling. And he was into every kind of debauchery that one can think of. Essentially, he made the palace place into a house of prostitution. Finally, the, the church heads were sort of scratching their heads trying to think of what to do with this, this guy that was out of control. And so they called for a meeting. They called for, for, uh, for a, uh, a council to bring the Pope, to bring Pope John 
uh, to an ecclesiastical trial. Well, Pope John refused to attend the trial. He went into hiding. And, uh, and after things had sort of settled down, uh, he came back to Rome again. He came out of hiding, came back to Rome, and then he vented his rage against the clerics who had testified against him to the council. The first one uh, was flogged to the point of death. The second one had his tongue cut out. The third one had his, hand chopped so his hands chopped off. And the fourth cleric had his nose and his fingers cut off for testifying against him. Yet the church turned its head away, as they did on all other occasions. It never excommunicated or punished any of them for the murderous debaucheries that was going on. I am grieved in my heart that that is in our history. I, I hope, I hope you, you get that same grieving spirit in you, within you, that that would be in our history. Because, by the way, our roots have come out of the system. Um... <coughs> I, I also want to be very certain and clear on this matter that this was not the true church of Jesus Christ. They called themselves Christian, but it was certainly not Christ's followers. And I want to just quickly come back um, as we bring this message to a close and just talk a little bit about the papal structure. When we think of a church being a household of households, we need to ask ourselves two questions in relation to what we have just gone through. This is the one structure that we see, and it's still existing today. And uh, I am not throwing, I'm not casting stones. I, what I want to present is the truth and, and let the Spirit of God uh, impress upon you what is truth and what isn't truth. But I think we need to ask ourselves two questions. One question, the first question we need to ask ourselves does this structure fit the biblical model or the biblical protocol of the church of Christ? And the second question I think we need to ask ourselves is, how did this structure affect the families that joined itself to them? The common father in this structure, <clears throat> in almost all cases, was little more than a slave in the order. Uh, if he failed to conform to those over him, the penalties that were dished out uh, to him uh, was unbelievable until he was willing to comply and to obey to the order. Uh, merciful and loving relationships between the father in the home and the, and the fathers in the church or the church fathers were almost non-existent. Men lived in mortal fear of the hierarchy. Um, and there's many more things that I could say about uh, just the, the way that they, the way they had spies set up in the, in the empire to look at the households of the common people to see if they were, if they were behaving properly or to see if they were, if, and if, they, if anything it was uh, suspicious, boy, there was judgment dished out immediately. Unfortunately, this became, and I'm referring to the fathers now, this became for many the, the style of fathering for them as well. 
if the father was total to totally blind uh, if the father was to blindly resign himself to obey the church leaders then the same expectation was raised towards his family as well that's the way he operated with his family that's the only that's the only paradigm he knew fathers in this in this type of system are often found to be harsh and cruel toward their spouses and their children and we even have some of that today. And uh, the, the thing is, God's intention for all fathers is to be the protector and the director of those who are entrusted to his care. Biblical fatherhood means that there is a genuine balance between love and care, yet disciplined enough to shepherd them towards Christ. And, and I just want to really bring it home right here. Many fathers today, we've had a lot of teaching across over the years about God's structure of, uh, and his principle of authority, and many fathers applaud that principle as it relates to their wife and their children. But I see a disconnect sometimes between how they then live it out themselves. There are fathers who, who diligently teach their, their children to properly submit uh, to them as parents by requiring obedience. And yet they themselves are unwilling to place themselves under the structure of the church body. Have you ever noticed that? When conflict arises, they pull up stakes and they go shopping for the next stop. And the question is, what are we teaching our children when we do that? Conditional authority? Or when it complies with what I think is right? Or is it like Jonathan said, Yes, I have my opinion, and yes, I have my ideas. But you know what? Humility calls for me to lay that down rather than separating myself from the body. One more passage of Scripture I quickly want to look at. Matthew uh, chapter 8, verse 5 through 16, 13. And it's a story about the, the centurion. Let's just break in there. Uh, his servant, there in verse six, 6, it says that his servant is lying at home, paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servants will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servants, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into, into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, 
And as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. What amazed Jesus about the centurion? There's only two times, I think, in Scripture that it says that Jesus marveled or Jesus was amazed. Jesus can be amazed. We think that he knows everything, and he does. But he was amazed twice. What was it that amazed him? The centurion's understanding of the principle of authority. That's what amazed Jesus, that he had the insight to see through the principle of authority. He said, I also, or I too, am a man under authority, even though I'm also in authority. And I say to my servants, go and do this and go and do that. But I do that realizing at the same time, I'm also under authority. And what he saw, what the centurion saw in Jesus, he understood that Jesus was also a man under authority. He was submissive to the Father. That's what amazed Jesus. He has the insight to see that I can only do that healing if the Father so, so lets it. And he said, your faith has healed your servant. Go your way. I want to close by saying this, that this passage provides an exemplary model of a man who understood that he was not only a man of authority, but that he was also a man under authority. If you want to raise God fearing children that voluntarily submit themselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ, then it is imperative that you as parents submit yourself not only to the bride of Christ, not only to the church, but also to his lordship. If you fudge on the principles of scripture, hence will your children if mom is not submissive to dad, so will the daughter. If dad is a brute, the children will grow up to be bitter towards him, toward the church, and toward God. The father that does not clearly understand that he is a man under authority is ill-prepared to take responsibility to be in authority. And the same is true for church leaders, including myself. Let's pray. Father God, in some ways I'm, I'm just grieved in my heart that, that uh, we have the history of the Dark Ages uh, in, in the church history. Uh, the other part of me rejoices that you continue to call us to yourself and that there is a way out and that we do not have to go the same path. Lord, it grieves me also to see the Western church at large going the same direction. Oh God, give us the tenacity, give us the strength, give us the vision here at Berea to stand true to you and to your principles and to your word. Help us to, to bind together with each other, to join together with each other, but also maintain that individual relationship with you. Commit ourselves to you in your name we pray. Amen.